1: The start of Radio Marinara, you're on 3 You're. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxhaw.
0: I'm Bron Burton.
2: And I'm Kate Mills.
1: How are you all this morning? Oh, I'm an
2: audio pirate today. An in audio pirate? I've, I only have one ear working. <laughs> <laughs> I need an ear patch. I've um, been diving in the Gippsland lakes all week and uh, one is a little bit clogged up at the moment.
0: You haven't picked up a bug or anything, Kate?
2: No, no pain, no fever, none of that. It's just years of surfing in Victoria. Everyone's right ear goes, because you sit out looking for the waves and the westerly in howls into it. (laughs) And um, the bone in my ear is almost completely grown over, so water has a tendency to get trapped in there.
1: So that, so if we were in, say, I don't know, Western Australia, you, it'd be everyone's left ear, would it? And then south, southwest
2: coast to westers. It depends on the predominant wind. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that cold water, cold I winds combination. And um, yeah, oh, mine's dear. pretty much cooked.
1: But... Well, we'll we'll talk clearly, Cade, and Thank loudly, you. so on the e waves you can hear us. <laughs> How about you, Brian? Have you all your senses working? <laughs>
0: As far as I'm aware, <laughs> I think I have all my faculties, as they say. Yeah,
1: all good. Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure mine are. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, good. Oh, well, welcome everybody. We've got a um, a huge show, number two for the year. One thousand one hundred and fourteen for the <laughs> for the entire series. Is is it a series? Do we get to call it a series? I don't know. We might as well. Yeah. What the hell? It's an epic. <laughs> it's, it is. It's become one of those. What are those Nordic things? The sagas. Okay. <laughs> it's become a Nordic saga. We have a very big show today, actually. We've got um, towards the end of the show, um, James Bond's coming in.
0: Yes. <laughs> who Otherwise known as Jeff Maynard, <laughs> who carries us through every year with his monthly or so segment called Sound Waves. And over the last few years, he's had a theme to his Sound segment. So... Yeah, this year it's James Bond. I, but <laughs> who would have thought? But it's but it's
1: even more so. And this is a surprise. The people who who weren't listening to the last show last year, it's actually the history of diving, told through Bond movies. Yeah. Which I just think is going Whoa. to be wonderful. <laughs> uh, before that, um, we're gonna we're gonna have a ch- chat with um Dr. Mike en- Emsley, who is who leads the Great Barrier Reef long-term reef monitoring program. I saw some stuff during the week with some large announcements up there and some claims being made about lack of information by uh, some climate deniers in federal politics. And um, I just thought, well, wow, there's, you know, there's 35 years worth of very good data. Um, so we're going to have a chat to the guy that runs the program, um, not about the politics, but about the science, really interesting science they've been doing. And um Kay, then what else yeah, we Yeah, then
2: we'll have Chris Smythe in because this year in November we celebrate the twenty year anniversary of like a network of marine reserves in Victoria. And Chris Chris was around twenty years ago at a time when there were no Marine, net, marine parks, marine sanctuaries, marine networks, with the exception of Pope's si, eye, I've got to throw that out there. That was the first one in 79. But yeah, we're going to talk about basically what the, the climate and what the um, what it was happening politically and within sort of the conservation movement to get the marine parks that we kind of take for granted. Well, we don't take for granted, but we just expect them to be there and we love them.
1: Bit of reminiscing for you and me too, Brian. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Having lived through all that, and um, this was
2: considered this a present for you guys. (laughs) The old days, the glory days. Yes, we are going to be
0: following this through right throughout twenty twenty two because, as you said, Kate, it is the twentieth anniversary and um, quite a big build up uh, to the to the final proclamation, which happened on the sixteenth of November. Um, yeah, 2002 So yeah, it'll be a really really good year Of looking back and, mm. and celebrating The Marine National Parks and Sanctuaries That we have today
1: And before we get into the weather We, we do need to thank Timothy Once again, you know, Tim is just above and beyond
0: Thank you Tim very much As always
1: I've run out of um, superlatives <laughs> I've run out of
0: adjectives And thank you uh, Andrew very much For Soulful Bits as well Yes, oh, brilliant They'll be back next week Bit of weather? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, for today, uh, oh, <laughs> so so here's the thing, people. <laughs> Dear friends listening right now, I, for- I forgot my phone this morning and um, I, I drive up Punt Road every Sunday morning and realised halfway up Punt Road, I come up from the south, I didn't have my phone. And unbelievable, I'm sure if you're listening and you've kind of forgotten your phone on occasion, you realise how kind of vulnerable you suddenly feel. <laughs> So from my end, it was um, oh, weather and accessing all sorts of stuff for the show. But anyway, I'm reading from an actual paper. Like a which real
1: I've, newspaper. Which
0: I've got in my hand. And I'm not used to doing this and it's completely throwing me. All right, sorry. Um, <laughs> weather. <laughs> And I'm just
1: wondering, are your prescriptions were My glasses
0: aren't working either.
1: (laughs) So maybe you've got the pirate eye. I know. Kate's got the pirate ear. I'll probably lose my tongue.
0: Between the three of us, we'll kind of manage to put together one complete person. It's the old folk show. (laughs) Okay, heading for a top of 29 today. It's going to be beautiful and sunny, mostly sunny, patchy fog about the nearby. I'm just ditching the glasses altogether. Patchy fog about the nearby hills in the early morning. Winds east to south easterly 25 to 35 kilometres oh, an hour. Really? Nice. Becoming light in the morning. That might have already happened, hmm. at least in Brunswick. Then becoming south easterly 20 to 30 kilometres per hour in the middle of the day. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. The chance of fog in the northeast suburbs in the early morning fog. We're heading into that kind of potentially autumnal morning fog that happens. <laughs> Do you we- think we're
1: going to skip the usual... F- one week of 40 something for when they go back to school. Yeah. Right.
0: I reckon that's, yeah.
1: Maybe that La Nina has given us a little, a little gift.
0: Maybe. Um, We do have three days of around 30 coming up, or four actually. So uh, 29 I mentioned today, tomorrow same, 29 and sunny, same on Tuesday nudging up a little bit to 30, Wednesday partly cloudy 31, Thursday back down to 24, so a dry change by the look of it, and then Friday 24 partly cloudy and then Saturday back up to 30. So mid-20s to 30, low 30s pretty much for the whole week. And the tides, if you're heading out today, uh, we have already had our first high tide. We're heading for a low tide at 10:33 this morning, and then back up to a high tide at 4:56 uh, this afternoon. That's at Port Phillip Heads.
1: You'll be out diving there, of course, with your single ear, Kate. Later on,
2: I will be up in the Gippsland Lakes, probably diving with my single ear. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, I was going to just, has anyone got any particular bits of news they want to raise quickly before we head into a little bit of music?
2: The only thing I wanted to do is thank everyone that's listening. Everyone that listens to Radio Marinara and particularly the subscribers to Radio Marinara and those that leave us a message. I don't know if we mentioned it last week on the show, but every year around Christmas time, we have the names removed but the messages sent to all the presenters. Mm. And so we get to see all the comments that you've typed online and all the things that you've said about the show. And I am amazed at the number of cats and dogs that subscribe <laughs> to Radio Marinara. <laughs> it's, um, I think Triple R, there's a space for a pet food show because. Um, <laughs> Um, you get a lot of pets on it because everything refers to how their tail wags when we get and they get excited talking about fish. But just letting people know that we do read your comments, and it is a bit of a Christmas present to all of us, and it warms our hearts, and we love getting them. So thank you.
1: Awesome. One of the the only thing I was gonna to mention too, that is wonderful. Thank you, Cade. Um I was a bit dismayed to see uh well reports yesterday and we might dig into this a little bit more in the coming month, but you know that extraordinarily large super trawler that Um, the federal government made a decision to ban from Australia uh, I think it's probably under a different flag now and possibly even under a different name but it's the same vessel it's the largest one in the world Um, they they had a tear in one of their big nets as they were pulling it in yesterday and there is a hundred thousand tons I want to get this right of blue whiting slick in off the northern European, in the ocean off northern Europe um i think just off holland actually which you can imagine the biomass of that fish mm. and yeah um, I think
2: number of mcgs
1: yeah it's massive and you kind of yeah. you look at it they've got a photo there's a photo i saw yesterday in the media and you know from the air it looks like an oil slick and now obviously that is not intentional for goodness sake that's you know that's their livelihood they're not going to get rid of their product but you know and they made and the company made the comment that this happens very very rarely but Gosh, when it happens, it really brings home the quantum of the scale of potential impact of those very massive um, super trawlers. You know, when one net can rip and you can end up with that much fish biomass as a slick. They had to tear it up. That's literally, they had to pull it in because it was ripped. They had to kind of let it go. And I think they bought the net in, but it was gone. The stock was gone. Anyway.
0: Whereabouts was this at?
1: Huh? I think it was actually off Holland. It got a bit confused because I think it's now registered in Lithuania and it carries this flag and whatever, but I think the, it actually happened off, not off Northern Europe, off mm-hmm. Holland. So where the, where the split happened. Amazing. Anyway, remarkable. Just brought home the scale of that kind of um, fishery or those kinds of vessels anyway
2: today is the doyen of marine conservation in Victoria, Victoria, if not Australia. Chris Smythe, along with many others, was at the forefront of an ongoing campaign to establish Marine National Parks Network in Victoria over 20 years ago. And if there's one thing I know about conservation campaigning is that the campaign likely started 20 years before that. Yes, listeners, 20 years ago, there was no such thing as a marine sanctuary or a marine national park. There was a marine reserve called Pope's Eye, but that's a story for another time. Because today we're going to sail the good ship Radio Marinara back in time 20 odd years ago to discuss and celebrate the work that went into creating the network of marine national parks we all know and love. To do that, I would like to welcome back onto the airwaves Chris Smythe for a stroll down memory lane. Good morning, Chris.
3: Good okay. good to be with you.
2: Are you ready for a stroll?
3: Well, I haven't had my bicycle ride this morning, so I'm probably a little bit stiff, but uh, (laughs) we'll, uh, we'll give it a try.
2: Well, as I alluded to earlier, campaigning can take a long time. It wasn't like the government woke up one day and thought, hey, it's time for a network of marine reserves. Can you give us a bit of a peek behind the curtain and paint a picture of what was going on in the conservation community to convince the government that marine national parks were a good idea?
3: Yes, well, marine national parks, like national parks on land can actually have as you said very long campaigns and so think something like alpine grazing cattle grazing took years and years and years for that to actually be successful in terms of banning that so in terms of marine national parks and sanctuaries you're right we didn't have any uh, at the time when the the legislation was finally passed in um, victoria we we have to go back to the 1970s and at that stage we had the Harold Holt Marine Reserves, but they were established under fisheries legislation. They weren't under national parks legislation. And that was sort of around 1978. And this was, I guess, three years after the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park had been established. And so there was a fair bit of interest in marine protection more generally. And then throughout the 80s, uh, we had the Land Conservation Council looking very closely at generally land-based public land use. But they were given the task also of looking at uh, the marine areas which are off those regions. And so South Gippsland and West Gippsland areas were two regions they were particularly interested in. And so they eventually established or recommended the establishment of parks in, um, so Corner Inlet, Nooramunga, Bunurong. And these are all um, what some people might dub multi-purpose parks, where they don't actually have any uh, restrictions to any great extent on on fisheries, whether commercial or recreational. And so some people might refer to them as paper parks. And that was, I guess, the the process that was going on through the 80s. And that's 40
2: uh, years ago that was happening, just to let people know.
3: This was during the Kane-Kerner governments. And they had a commitment to establish a protected area network in marine areas. Um, But there was no commitment to high level protection and what we sometimes call no take. And then through the 90s, the LCC was providing a, a, a very detailed marine investigation, but it took seven or eight years to do it. And by the time it, it um, released that, there was a change of government. In 1999, Steve Brack's Labor government came to power in September 1999, and they came with a policy commitment of a, a network of marine national parks in Victoria's coastal waters. And that was the first And that was to be a network established as one. Whereas in the past, they were establishing marine protected areas in regions, one at a time. And so that changed the dynamic in terms of a campaign, because it's much harder if you're going to have opposition to oppose a whole network, whereas it's much easier to oppose individual parks in regions. And because these regions were rural. And so there was always going to be less support in rural areas than you have in urban areas in terms of uh, marine protection, just the demographics. And so when you look at um, support for Victoria's marine national parks, there was really strong support in Melbourne metropolitan area and it drifted off as you got further and further away from the coast. Sorry, away from the city. Chris has so born... That was... Sorry.
0: Oh, hey, Chris. It's Bron. I just wanted to pause at that moment because it's actually a really significant moment in in this big journey to finally establish all this big system of marine national parks and sanctuaries because a couple of things happened here. One was that election commitment to establish that system was really quite um, revolutionary and groundbreaking at the time. There wasn't really another system like this anywhere in the world. Um, you know, obviously, New Zealand had its Lee Marine Reserve, which was a bit of a a poster child of marine reserves um, and and others, kind of a few here and there scattered around the world. But to have an entire comprehensive system of marine reserves representing all sorts of different ecosystems along the Victorian coast was considered to be groundbreaking. And then, of course, once the election happened and the Brax government got in and it was an unexpected victory at the time as well. All of a sudden, he was this, you know, everything changed. That was a real game-changing moment, wasn't it?
3: Oh, very much so. Um, Without that commitment and also the commitment to deliver it, uh, because even though you certainly can go to an election with a policy, but as we've discovered over the last few decades, it's not always delivered. And so, and it was also fraught. I mean, obviously there was quite a bit of opposition. The other uh, critical element was it was a minority government. So we had three independents, who had the balance of power in Victoria in the lower house. And so there was that kind of tightrope that the government also had to to walk through. And those three independents were from rural areas and one in particular was an abel diver. So it did create some interesting um, dynamics in terms of the campaign.
0: Exactly. And that that independent uh, MP in particular was... He was a real... I can just see a working dog movie springing out of this and I can't believe it hasn't happened already. But to have, have this particular... Um, person you know enter into this stage where the government has won the election they've made this commitment they now have to honour it but there's a there's a few interesting characters in the mix that aren't going to make it easy for them
3: exactly and uh, but uh, and it also made it difficult because in 2001 the legislation was put into parliament but it failed to get uh, bipartisan support and bipartisanship had been the feature of um, public land protection right over since the LCC was formed in the 1970s. And so the the, Co- the Liberal Party and the Labor Party almost always supported Land Conservation Council recommendations. And so this created some tension because this wasn't land-based, this was actually marine-based. And because it had it progressed in fits and starts over the previous 20 years in terms of trying to develop some protected areas, um, this was really a very challenging time and we we hit that wall in 2001 but fortunately we're able to um, dust ourselves off and come back in 2002 and get the legislation passed
2: now i just wanted to ask i guess go back a step Um, as far as some of the terminology around marine parks i think this still confuses people you mentioned paper parks earlier and the idea of a park versus a sanctuary versus a reserve versus a network Um, what I guess, what terms are we using and what are, what are the ones we're looking for the most?
3: Well, and well, globally, there's certainly a lot of difference in the way people label marine protected areas. And so in the US, marine reserves are what you'd call no-take. Uh, whereas here, a marine reserve, say for instance, the original Wilson's Promontory marine reserve was not a no-take marine reserve. In fact, it was the subject of a court challenge uh, from the abalone divers. And, and so, I guess those people who are steeped in the marine national parks campaign of 2000 like really are quite pedantic about referring to them as marine national parks and marine sanctuaries. Although even we find that marine parks keep dropping into the conversation. A marine park is a very different animal. Uh, it's generally zoned in some way. So you have different zones with different levels of protection. Although in the case of the marine and coastal parks we have here, which are essentially the same as a marine park interstate they don't have any zones it's just uh and there's very little change in the the level of protection
1: It's such a great point chris because part of our you know what i remember was there's almost a piece of education with both politicians and public and other you know and stakeholders to explain that you know like all this stuff no it's not one of those it's one of these it's not an orange it's a it's a Clementine or whatever. And so, in the end, of course, I mean, just no take became the kind of, you know, these, these are things where you, you just don't take stuff from. And that became the shorthand and whatever the, you know, the official formal name under whatever. But you're right, it is a, it's, it doesn't, the same kind of complexity is not as obvious on land, I don't think, with the parks as well, with the linguistic complexity. But anyway, I'll yes. let you continue with the story. Yes.
2: No, we're going to have to get Chris back for a part two because I have a feeling we've only got one or two minutes left, and we haven't even discussed getting some rock stars into the studio at Triple R. Well, some marine rock stars into the studio to talk about protect marine protection. So I think I'm going to have to shelve that for now. Are we happy with that? Because my next question is probably going to take Chris a couple of minutes. Totally.
1: And I was going to ask, maybe before we do that, can we just say, oh, I reckon, Brom. That, we should play that interview again. Yeah, yeah. This year. I carry it with me
0: everywhere I go. It's actually <laughs> It's, it's actually here. interview. It's in my folder. Yes. Just for we those who don't know, on air with yeah,
1: you. just for those who don't know, Bron interviewed live in the studio together, the only time in the history of humanity, the three kind of leading um, lights of the conservation, marine conservation movement, David Bellamy, Suzuki, David Suzuki and Sylvia L. It's it is this incredible interview. Uh, you know, it gives and me goosebumps Chris talking about it.
2: Played a part in getting.
1: Yeah, Chris of those and Tim minutes. got him in the in the room.
2: Yeah, yeah. So look, we will talk about that. We can. Sorry, Chris, we're going to have to do a part two. But just <laughs>
3: yeah, very happy to come back.
2: Yeah. Just to leave off though, um, I guess what has happened in the 20 years since the parks, and I guess what are you what are your hopes for the future? Because it's been a bit stagnant in the last 20 years. It was announced, it happened, and not much has happened since. And where are you hoping things, or where would you like to see things go in the next 20 years? And what's the rest of the world doing? Sorry, there's a two minute answer for it.
3: Yes, as (laughs) as Bron Bron was saying, this was a world first, (laughs) a a network of marine national parks, 24 sanctuaries in marine national parks. It was a world first, but we have been left behind. And we're we're still stuck at 5.3% of Victoria's Coastal Wars in marine national parks and marine sanctuaries. Yes, we have the other marine and coastal parks. They make up another six percent, but they're certainly not in the same category. And so Western Australia has moved well ahead of us. Um, we're still well ahead of Tasmania and the Northern Territory. Uh, but uh, in terms of global, uh, there's certainly been some movement, but most many countries are struggling with um, with uh, establishing marine national parks and sanctuaries around the world. So, but for us, uh, certainly, in terms of where we would, where I'd like us to see, it, certainly we need to review the network. That's something which the Victorian Environment Assessment Council recommended uh, five years ago, and that's essential. But we also, but unfortunately, both parties, both major parties, have policies of not establishing any more marine national parks and sanctuaries in Victoria's coast waters, which is a great shame. And until we change that mindset, until we get a decent review. It's very hard to form the base of a new campaign, but we certainly the are areas which are calling out for for greater protection. We have no uh, protection really along the Otway Coast, except for the very tiny sanctuary at uh, Moringo. Uh, there's nothing in the Gippsland Lakes. There's nothing in the inlets along East Gippsland. Uh, there's places like Crawfish Rock in um, Western Port not protected. Great spots should be protected. So there's lots of lots of uh, Not always low-hanging fruit, but plenty of hanging fruit there which could actually be uh, picked and form a a much more expanded Marine National Parks Network.
2: Thank you for that, Chris. It's given everyone a lot of stuff to think about. For more information on that, the Victorian... Uh, national Parks Association on their Marine National Parks and Sanctuaries page does have a link to a lot of that stuff you're talking about, potential areas and future places, and also a podcast on the history of marine reserves in Victoria, so give a quick shout out to that. And as I said, we will get you back for part two to talk about the rock stars and to dig into a bit deeper about the future of marine parks, marine national parks.
0: And just Thank Just, you. just <laughs> before we let you go, Chris, um, we, we did have a call, big hi to you from SANE, surfers appreciating the natural environment, ah. and um, particularly Hello to you, Chris, from Gordon Stammers.
3: Oh, great. Great to hear from you, Gordon. And uh, also for saying a great little organisation. I'm down in Queenscliff now and uh, I can almost see their their uh, Ballywick.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Hey, Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for joining us.
3: Okay. Thanks a lot. See you guys.
1: Like we're going way back with all of our pieces we just talked about. The time before marine protected areas in Victoria over 20 years ago, and now we're going to talk about long-term monitoring. So how do we know how the Great Barrier Reef is actually going? It's especially important, I guess, with the impacts of climate change, increasing impacts of climate change, and then, of course, people in the catchments and crown of thorns and all this kind of stuff. And this morning, we're joined by someone who knows. Uh, Dr Mike Emsley is the project leader of the long-term monitoring program at the Great Barrier Reef, um, at Ames, at the Great He's a marine, senior marine ecologist at Ames and he joins us live from far north Queensland at some ungodly hour up there. Good morning, Mike, and welcome
4: morning anthony thanks very much for having me and uh yeah it's not too ungodly up here so i um, happy to happy to have a chat with you this morning S- sensational and i gotta
1: say i can see your skype background which of course listeners can't and it's a beautiful piece of reef up there hey you know what let's start with the kind of potted history so when did this program start you know and then has it kind of changed over time
4: yeah great question anthony so the um Long-term monitoring programs, the largest, longest running, most comprehensive information source on the health of the Great Barrier Reef, it had its uh, roots back in the, uh, well, I guess the late 1970s with the second outbreak of crown of thorn starfish that were observed. At that time, there was really no uh, large widespread comprehensive monitoring program. And, And so we really had no idea at the, at the extent and severity of the impacts of that wave of crown of thorns. So in 19, I think it was about 1983, um, the, for the first time there was uh, a widespread comprehensive monitoring program using the same method across the whole Great Barrier Reef in a single year. And uh, this employed what's called the tow method where an observer gets dragged along behind a boat, much like a human lure. And records the uh, the status and condition of <laughs> coral reefs as, as you go, and you also have the ability to crown uh, crown crown of thorns starfish. And so, so how fast there... are they going?
1: There's, there's, there's these divers being towed by boats. Are they, are they zipping along, or just going a bit slowly so they can?
4: Oh no, you, you're doing one and a half, two knots. Oh, so it's, okay. You right. can't you can't go too quickly, otherwise yeah. you get uh, you get dragged off the board. But so that's um... how it
1: started, and then what did it evolve into?
4: Um, Yeah, so in the 1990s, there was kind of a realisation that, um, you know, biodiversity was was under stress and really the information we were collecting while it was good, while it was robust and rigorous, it uh, didn't give us any information about, uh, say, the makeup of species on the reef, so the numbers and and diversity of fish and corals. And um, at the time, the then Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, was visiting Ames and... He asked, you know, what what would it take to, to produce a really robust, uh, intensive sampling and monitoring program? And the scientists there at the time said, well, if we could get some money to be able to go out and do some um, permanent transects and repeatedly visit them at each reef, then that would be the best way to, to get a handle on the changes in space and the changes in time of the, the reef fish and, and the, you know, the coral Assemblages and and um, Prime Minister Hawke at the time just said thought that was a great idea, so he requested huh. um, Ames uh, money for an annual monitoring program from which the long-term monitoring program evolved wow
1: isn't that interesting the way these kind of moments in history just create you know they enable a program like that now you do annual reports um tell me just just so listeners know there, you know we think of you know, crown of thorns you mentioned as probably the impetus to start the measurement um, impacts from climate change water runoff um, you know things that can happen what, what are, what's the stuff that can that can kill coral what's the stuff that you might be able to pick up signals for
4: Well, there's there's a long list, unfortunately, Anthony. So uh, you've mentioned quite a few there. Water quality, you've got coastal development, um, dredging can have an impact. Um, And then, of course, there's uh, pollution in the water um, and then a a whole raft of what we term kind of natural disturbances, I guess. Um, You could debate whether climate change is natural or not. (laughs) Yeah so yeah climate change is identified as the greatest threat to the great barrier reef at present because it can you know can increase water temperatures and corals have a very narrow thermal tolerance uh it can also change the chemistry of the water you've got crown of thorns starfish So uh, currently there's a there's another wave of outbreaks going on across the great barrier reef really centered in the center and uh the southern great barrier reef where there's really really high numbers of of starfish Hmm. but there's also other um, other sources of mortality cyclones and storms can create large waves which will decimate coral communities Um, and there's any number of coral diseases so corals actually catch diseases as well Um, and other little um, coral liver so uh, snails that feed on coral as well, called Drapella. So, yeah, so, so there's, there's a long, all... <laughs> long litany of, of impacts that can affect the reef. And,
1: and um, as I understand it, the, the long-term monitoring program can pick up signals for many of those things, but not all of them. Like it, it, I, as I understand, it's not designed to look at water quality, for example, um, but but some of those other signals it could pick
4: up. No, that's correct. So, um, I mean, water quality is obviously a very vexed uh, issue, but this program really is centred on the, the kind of mid-shelf, outer shelf, and we look at the signals that we get in the, the status of coral. So we use a, a robust metric called uh, percent coral cover. So that's the percentage of the seafloor covered in living coral, and we can track that through time, um, and you really pick up these strong signals of uh, disturbance and recovery. Um, particularly from crown of thorns, from cyclones, from coral bleaching, disease and drupella.
2: Mike, I just wanted to sort of go back and I guess for the listeners, can you tell us what happens on these transects? So you've got these permanent transects, you've been going there, what's the diver doing? What are they recording? Um, And how long does it take to do all this across the reef?
4: so the permanent transects we uh we have a team of uh four divers that goes out so the the first one going out um counts the reef fish um what we call the large roving reef fish so um and they are then followed by the the team benthos who goes along and takes a photo photo every meter along a transect um, which then gets analyzed back in the lab uh, to produce those estimates of of percent coral cover i was talking about then um a third member of the team swims along and looks for those agents of coral mortality um and um finally uh, another observer comes back the other way rolling up the tapes oh. and counts all the the little site attached fishes that we see as well
1: so it's a remarkably um, detailed assessment i mean you the data set as you mentioned i mean it's one of the longest running but it must be an enormous data set and how do you, how do you, do you get the opportunity to tease apart the patterns? Do you, I know, I noticed for example in last year's annual report there was quite significant recovery um, but it seemed like it was coming off a period where there'd been quite significant impact through the big kind of, you know, um, we heard about the massive heat event that caused a lot of coral bleaching. Can you get into the detail and kind of look for patterns?
4: Oh, absolutely. Look, you know, we, we survey uh, 70 reefs a year with these detailed uh, methods um, and the detailed information started in 1992. So it's, mm. it's getting up towards the 30 year mark for that detailed assessment. If you can imagine delving into that data set. There's any number of ways you can uh, you can tease that apart. And, you know, we produce, aside from that annual report which you mentioned, But uh, we also produce any number of uh, peer-reviewed publications in which we do try to tease out all those little details.
1: And then I'm assuming that it kind of links back to how the reef gets managed. So when there are things like, obviously, climate change is not something that the reef managers can manage. But the you know things like crown of thorns outbreaks or other things they could or disease they might be able to manage um, those. Is that how it works?
4: Yeah, that's right. Uh, The the information we collect. Uh, goes directly to the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority um, and we feed, we work very closely with their um, COTS control, so Crown of Thorns control program and and it's a two-way sharing of information so um, we let them know where we found large numbers of Crown Crown of Thorns starfish and of course they give us the, the reciprocal information. Um, And also, I mean, our information feeds into the Outlook report, which Mm -hmm. comes out every five years, produced by Gubrumpa. The last one had uh, degraded the reef to a very poor outlook for all of the the stresses that we've highlighted um, so far. Um, And we are a a big source of information for policymakers as well. So, um, you know, Ames is represented at uh, Senate Estimates, quite a few times a year. And, you know, the LTMP data is really looked at as this uh, robust, reliable source of information on the status of the reef.
1: LTMP is the long-term monitoring program, just for those who hadn't caught the (laughs) acronym. Hey, so when's the next one come out? And when it does, will you come on and tell us about some of the patterns?
4: Yeah, I'd love to to come back and uh, tell you about the next report. We're currently in the middle of our field season. We have a field season that runs over basically the financial year from, um, you know, uh, September through to probably May we will be finished our field work in early, very early May this year and then uh, once we go through our rigorous quality assurance and quality control measures, um, we will then produce the report for that sampling period okay. so, so
1: later in the year we'll, we'll be in touch and we'll get you back on you can tell us about the patterns
4: yeah absolutely love to Brilliant. It should be uh june july august sometime in that window just depending we'll put uh, what in, else happens
1: we'll put yeah. it in the forward schedule hey mike thank you very much for joining us this morning from far north queensland fill us in we're all envious of the warm water up there even if it's warmish down here it's nothing like that <laughs> uh we'll talk to you later in the year
4: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Anthony. Been Brilliant. Pleasure.
1: Cheers. Dr. Mike Emsley, there from Ames, a senior reef ecologist. Indeed, you are on 3 Triple R. It's about 10 minutes to 10 o'clock, 10 minutes to the doctors. Um, and uh, prior to that little message was Archie Roach and Sally Dasty. And that is off this wonderful tribute, kind of re release album, Tell Me Why, with a book involved as well from a year or two ago. And we welcome into the studio James slash Sean slash Jeffrey. I know Bond Connery. How
5: are you? Yeah, let's not get fixated on the James Bond thing about all this, (laughs) because this year Soundwaves is going to get very educational. I always look for a theme, Mm -hmm. and what I wanted to do this year was look at the history of going deeper underwater. Because This is something that people don't really look at, the human journey of discovery downward, and it's a little bit different to other human journeys of... Uh, discovery in the sense that like uh, for example if you take the history of flight 1903 the Wright brothers make powered flight and within seven decades we're landing on the moon it's quite quick the history of going downwards is is a journey of discovery that's really taken us about 2,000 years to travel a distance of seven kilometers well seven (laughs) miles or 11 kilometers it's been a slow journey and that's probably because each time we go that little bit deeper, uh, the goalposts move. Mm. It's it's completely different. We've needed mm. completely different technology. So what I'm going to do this year is take us downward um, to the bottom of the ocean throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting today with, um, well, in um, in antiquity, basically, people, all they could do is um, hold their breath, jump in. Or well, they might grab a rock to sort of pull them downward, and they would swim down. And they really only went down for... Um, Grab pearl shell, grab sponges, grab bit of fish, something to eat, and that that was it. Um, but anyway, let's keep. And, and, oh yeah, James Bond. I, I thought I, I, I forgot about that part. I kind of needed a theme, you know, it's just some just something to sort of throw in there. So I, I wasn't quite sure what. Anyway, I thought, well, look, James Bond movies, there's plenty of them. Um, so anyway, play track one. Let's get our mission and let's start our journey okay, downward. Here we go. Okay. Ah, there you are,
2: Double L Seven. Minister, Chief of Staff. Five days ago,
1: our spy ship St George's was sunk in the Ionian Sea. She was equipped with ATAC. Now, if that transmitter were to fall into the wrong hands, it would render our entire Polaris fleet useless. Our own submarines could be ordered to attack our own cities. Have we begun a salvage operation, Minister? Operation Undertow. The information's all here. Mm, Operation Undertow. Um, So, uh,
5: the. Necessity being the mother of invention, um, it was shipwrecks that actually forced us to figure out a way to breathe underwater. Uh, When we were collecting pearl shells or fish or whatever, it wasn't a problem. Um, And it really didn't happen. Well, before the 15th century, um, there were a lot of fanciful methods of breathing underwater. Uh, People wrote about getting sponges and you'd take a sponge and hold it in your mouth and suck the air out of the sponge. And there were lots of drawings of people with a a tube to the surface. Uh, Of course, once you got underwater, the weight of the water on your lungs meant you couldn't inhale, so it didn't work. Uh, And there were various drawings. Uh, The very first actual drawing that we can date of a method of breathing underwater comes from 1405, and it's in a uh, German university. There's a manuscript where a person has drawn two methods of breathing underwater – one is a, looks like an old sort of helmet and it's stuffed with sponge. And the other one is the person's got a bladder in front of their mouth and they just breathe in and out of the bladder. Neither, would, neither one of those would have worked. <laughs> By the end of the 15th century, the Portuguese and the Dutch were running all over the world in wooden ships, colonising everything and um, grabbing everything they could um, and sa- sailing across the Indian Ocean, the, um, the Atlantic Ocean and so on. Uh, and ships started sinking or getting across, hitting the shore and sinking, so people needed to go underwater. Uh, and so it was by about the beginning of the, the 16th century or the 1500s, uh, they said, we need a method of breathing underwater. So let's have a listen to what James Bond has to say about that.
1: <laughs> he made several surveys in Neptune.
5: What's Neptune?
0: A two-man submarine. According to this, he saw a diving bell here.
2: Diving, bell.
0: Three days later, he sighted a wreck in the same area. That was his last entry, the day he was killed. Well, air would be useless at this depth. We'd need a special mixture of oxygen and helium. I have all the necessary equipment aboard. The less people to know about this, the better.
5: <laughs> so, really, in um, this era, the Age of Discovery, the only method of breathing underwater that actually worked, or, well, they had... They could employ was the diving bell and it's a pretty simple principle if you take an enclosed uh, something turn it upside down push it underwater the air will be trapped inside and so in the 16th century people started using diving bells and, and they it's got finite their name. yeah sorry yeah, i
1: mean it's finite the, you only have whatever air is in the bell, won't you? Yes, you only yeah. have the air
5: in the yeah, bell. And yeah. the deeper you go, the more compressed the air becomes. Yeah, and so you only have half the space. But you also need a lot of weight to drag it down. So what they started using was big, heavy church bells. And, got, <sighs> and that's where the diving bell got its name from. They used actual church bells. Had a big loop on the top that you hung it and you put a rope on it. And you went down. But there were, the air was... Yes. Um, thank you, Anthony. The air is finite. Let's see what James Bond says about <laughs> oh, that. Okay.
1: Wouldn't the St George's crew have destroyed the transmitter?
0: Only if they'd had the chance to set the explosive timer. 584 feet. An oxygen helium mix at that depth will give us eight minutes. We're going to have to work fast.
5: So with a finite s airspace, yes, we're going to have to work fast. Um, uh, they, they realized when they were going down the diving bells the air became hot it became hard to breathe they couldn't understand why and it wasn't until um around the 1660s and uh, people like robert boyle and robert Hooke and that actually started to figure out those problems but uh that's part one of the history of going deeper underwater we're talking about diving bells um and for Pretty much from the time they started using them. They, they stayed in use for about 300 years. Oh, seriously? Get, yeah. That, that, right up to the mid-19th move. century. Uh, you wow. were still well, late nineteenth century you were still using
1: diving bells. That's uh, in such sharp contrast to, you know, where you started with the Wright brothers in nineteen oh whatever and now we've got space flight. You yes, know, like it's
5: yes, it, it, wow. it, it took a long time to change. But um, at the beginning of uh, around the time of Shakespeare, two other methods started working underwater of breathing underwater, other than the diving bell. Uh, but we'll get James to tell us about those sometime next Ooh. episode. <sighs> This like, is fun, educational and fun. It is. See, it's, it's educational, isn't it? Yeah. Who would have thought that... I, I wanted that to raise the bar. And oh, I, you I, have look, raised the bar. Let's, let's teach people something they don't know.
3: Yeah.
5: And um, But, let you know, chuck a bit of James in there as well. Who would have thought... That was Roger that, Moore, by the way, those was things. Was. I thought of one called... Um, for your eyes only, which is probably one of the better Roger yeah, Moore I think so James Bondy ones. They, they got really
1: Here's, here's me advertising. It was Sean parodies. Connery. Sorry, but I should have gone Roger Moore. Yeah, yeah, totally. It was the Batman era. It was the, it was complete. It, it was all parody, camp, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, and all that. But sorry, bro, for you your would, eyes you only. say
5: something serious, did it? Was a better Roger Moore. Hi, Bron, you're in the studio. Hi, Jeff. How are yes, you? Yes, I
0: am. Didn't see you sitting there.
5: Sorry, the boys were gone about James. And
0: we'll, have, we'll pick it up a next good time. time. Any yeah. clues for next time, Jeff?
5: Uh, look, um, different methods of diving in the um,
1: 17th century.
0: Okay, great. So we're going, yeah, okay, great. I think. There's
1: that music. So next week, Brian?
0: Next week, um, well, because I don't have my phone, I can't look <laughs> at my, my, my schedule, but I do know we do have uh, Rob Lorenzen who's going to be a special guest on our show. He's a frequent uh, correspondent with us here on Radio Marinara and a, a very good friend as well, um, and he's written his great book called Spike Surf's, and we've heard a bit about Spike. Spike subscribes to Triple R as well. His dog, oh, yes. who came from the lost dog's home. So really fabulous book. Looking forward to speaking with Rob then.
1: Thank our guest for the day, Chris Smythe um, and... Um, Dr. Mike Emsley from Ames in North Queensland. Thank you, Cade. Um, thank you. Guys, and I'm off to the beach. A good one. Thanks, Bron.
0: Thanks, See man. you next time. Stay tuned for radiotherapy. Kent, Sharma, and Neonatal. We'll take you through to 11. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.